Happy Lord's Day. I love you. Let's get right to work. Today, I'm going to read for you five Bible verses from Hebrews chapter 12. Then I'm going to do the best that I can to explain those verses, and then I'm going to give you five, I'm sorry, six points of application. So please turn to Hebrews chapter 12. When you have that, if you'll stand, listen please as I read verses 25 through 29. Hear the word of the Lord. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Lord, we can do our very best to be reverent and to have awe, but Lord, this is not really going to happen unless your Holy Spirit moves in us, and Lord, unless your Spirit reveals yourself to us so that we, Lord, might behold you in your holiness and your glory, and Lord, that we might then, in a very natural response, be reverent and view you with awe. And so, Lord, we are asking that you would reveal to us yourself as you are. I pray, Lord, for every apathetic heart that has walked into the room today. I pray that the sermon today would stir up in their hearts, Lord, a zeal and a fervor and a fire for passionate worship, whereby, Lord, we might actually be people who are reverent and view you with the awe that you certainly deserve. And Lord, may this all be accomplished in and through Jesus Christ, for the glory of Jesus Christ, for it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray and ask. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The point of the Bible is Jesus. The point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than anything in Judaism and The point of Hebrews chapter 12 is that we are to run the race that is set before us with endurance. The last time we were together, we looked at verses 18 through 24, and we contrasted the scary mountain, that is Mount Sinai, the old covenant, that is the law of Moses, with the safe mountain, and the safe mountain was Mount Zion, that is the new covenant, the church, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this contrast between the Old Testament law and the New Testament gospel, uh, there is a clear demonstration that there is a superiority to the gospel. And this superiority calls for a response, and our text today speaks as to what that response should be. I want you to be forewarned about this passage. Uh, there are a few complicated items. Uh, so this is one of those messages where it requires concentration and attention and your thinking cap. Uh, 
But at the same time, I'm confident that even if I misinterpret a few of the items, the bottom line of this passage is going to still be clear. Let's remember who the original audience was. They were a small group of Jewish Christians who were living in Rome about the year A.D. 66, and they were discouraged. They were contemplating a departure from Jesus and the church and Christianity back into Judaism. And this book, this book of Hebrews, is a series of arguments and warnings which says to them, don't do that. Stick with Jesus. Well, today I want to I want you to notice that that admonition continues in this passage, and we're going to be considering it under three headings. These three headings are our three points, and that is the place, the permanence, and the pyro. The place, the permanence, and the pyro. Point number one, the place. The place from which the communication comes says a lot about how important that communication is. The place from which the communication comes says a lot about how important that communication is. In school growing up, I was both a bad student and a bad boy. I was constantly in trouble. Now, teachers in my classrooms would do the very best that they could to control me, but they didn't have a lot of success. And so I, as a result of my behavior, would get communication from another place. The place that I would get communication was from the principal's office. Mr. Gusurowski, Mr. Hook, Mr. McCluskey, Mr. Bailey, they were more effective communicators than were my teachers. You see, the principal's office, not the room itself, but what the room stood for was a place of influence. Do you not find it strange that almost a half a century has passed and I can still remember their names? That's not difficult for me at all. I knew these men well and they knew me well. We spent a lot of time together. And so it can be said, it's not school that I hated, but it's the principle of the thing. The principle of the thing. See, it, two words sound the same, but they're spelled the, the principle of the Mr. Gusherowski. All right. Notice the prominent place from which the communication comes in verse 25, Hebrews 12, 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not receive when they, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Uh, a few items here require explanation. First of all, there are not two speakers. Uh, some people think that one of the speakers, the one from earth, is Moses, and the other speaker, the one from heaven, is God or Jesus. Uh, that's not what it's saying at all. Uh, God is the one who is speaking here in both cases. So you have in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, uh, the fact that God is the one who is speaking to us. God is the one who is talking. There is just a variety of forms with which he speaks. So you have in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago at many times, and here you go, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But notice, even though the words that they are hearing are coming from the prophets, it is God who is the one who is speaking, and Moses was one of those prophets. 
And then in verse two, it says, but in these last days, he has spoken. Who is the he? He is God. God is the one that is speaking. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by, what is the instrumentality? By his son. And so too, in Hebrews 12, 25, God is the speaker in both instances, but the place of the communication changes. In the first place, it was earth. That is a reference to Mount Sinai, the scary mountain. The children of Israel received the law there from God through Moses. And when they received it, the earth shook, the earth quaked, literally. And please notice that when they received that word, they refused him who spoke from there. That is that they constantly disobeyed. It all began with the golden calf. It continued in unbelief when they refused to go into the promised land, when the spies came back with the negative report, and it continued with idolatry for centuries. They refused God. They constantly disobeyed. And as a result, they did not escape. They they were made to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They had to live with constant hardship, like covenantal curses, like famines. And then they were ultimately exiled when the nation of Assyria came in and destroyed the northern kingdom. And then when the temple of Solomon was destroyed by the Babylonians and they were carried off into captivity. Point is, they did not escape. Thus, what was written was written to them, and they gave it no regard. And even when the book of Hebrews was written, the Jewish people were slaves to Rome. The vast majority of Jewish people, even though they are the children of Israel, even though they are the covenant sons and daughters of God, the vast majority of them went to hell. They refused God and his covenant at Mount Sinai, and they did not escape. That is true. Every Jew, whether they were saved or whether they were not, They knew that, and they believed that about their history. And so God spoke at Sinai, we didn't listen and we didn't escape. That is a given. That is the lesser truth. And this argument in verse 25 is an argument from the lesser to the greater. The lesser truth, which is a given, is that we were given a covenant at Sinai, we didn't listen, now we move to the greater truth. The greater truth is, seeing as how God has spoken again, but this time he has spoken from heaven, that is the greater truth. Heaven is greater than earth. It is a greater place. So if we didn't escape when he spoke from earth, how in the world do we think that we're going to escape when he speaks from heaven? And speaking from heaven refers to the communication which they received from Jesus Christ. He was God's messenger from heaven. And so it's simply saying that those who rejected and disobeyed the law were in trouble, but those who reject and disobey the gospel are in worse trouble. Uh, When God spoke on earth through Moses, he was serious, but when God spoke through his son, Jesus Christ, from heaven, the volume went up, as did the accountability and the seriousness of the offense. It's a replay of what we read back in Hebrews chapter 2. Turn back there, please. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, we, we who have received the new covenant Christian message of the gospel, we must pay much closer, not just closer, but much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Why? For since the message declared by angels, that is the 
old covenant, which was given on Mount Sinai from God to Moses, mediated by angels. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. In other words, they didn't escape. Well, if they didn't escape under an inferior covenant, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those, to us by those who heard. You see, you're not going to get away from the seriousness of the new covenant if you go back into Judaism. And so point number one is stick with Jesus because the place from which he speaks is superior. That is the exalted king of heaven, Jesus Christ, is speaking. Which brings us to number two, stick with Jesus because of the permanence. Stick with Jesus because of the permanence. Let me read, please, verses 26 and 27. At that time, that is, at the time of the giving of the law, at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Uh, This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that or so that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This is one of those difficult items that I forewarned you about. Verses 26 and 27 are a quote from Haggai chapter 2. Judah has been in captivity for 70 years. Their temple, that is the temple of Solomon, has been torn down. But now the people are allowed to return to Jerusalem. And they are back in Jerusalem, and the temple is being rebuilt. As the young people, who had never seen a temple before, are looking at this temple, they like it. They think that it's just fine. It's magnificent. But the old people, that is the people who remembered the first temple, they don't like it at all. And the reason that they don't like it is not just because they are old and set in their ways, but they don't like it because objectively it is not as big, it is not as ornate, it is not as beautiful as Solomon's temple. And what does the Lord have to say to these old people? The Lord says, don't view it that way because I am with you. Haggai 2.9, the latter glory of this house, that is the new temple, will be greater than the former. By this, God does not mean that the building itself will be more resplendent and more ornate. It will not be. But by saying that the latter temple will be better than the former temple, he is saying, my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will actually walk into this temple. In fact, my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the latter temple. John two nineteen, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they said, well, it's been 46 years in building. How can you say that you're going to build it up in three days? And they didn't know that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Uh, But what Haggai is saying and what the Lord is saying through Haggai is that before my son comes to, to stand foot in that temple, there's going to be a lot of shaking that is going on. Before he comes, a lot is going to be shaken. And shaking here 
is a disruption of normal patterns. There's a normal pattern of things when they are disturbed that is shaking. Well, when God spoke at Mount Sinai, the earth literally shook. And Haggai and the writer of Hebrews is saying that at the coming of the Messiah, the norms will be shaken even more significantly, not only earth, but also heaven. Now, what does this mean? I read a lot of commentaries. I could give you those options, but I'm just going to go with the one that I think is right. And by the way, I happen to agree with John Owen and Matthew Henry and John Brown, who all believe that the shaking shaking of heaven and earth refer to the permanent end of Judaism as an acceptable form of worship. There are some who believe that the shaking refers to the actual destruction of the planet Earth. I happen to think that John Owen, John Brown, and Matthew Henry are right when they say that this shaking refers to the permanent end of Judaism as an acceptable form of worship. And it is symbolized by the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now, why do we call the temple in Jerusalem heaven and earth? Because the place where heaven and earth come together, where God and man come together, is at the temple. Listen to how John Brown puts it. He says, I will make a great change, not only in the external, that's that's the earth, which refers to the temple and the priests and the sacrifices, so forth and so on, but also in the spiritual, uh, that is, heaven. Uh, the earth was shaken, that is, the external form was completely altered. The temple itself was torn down. But the heavens were also shaken. That is a clearer and more extensive revelation of spiritual truth. Not only was the outward sign, were the outward signs of Judaism taken away, but also the very heart of it was taken away. Heaven and earth, they are both gone. That's my guess. And, and I, I think he's right. Matthew Henry put it this way. It is by the gospel from heaven that God shook to pieces the civil and ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical here simply means the religion of Judaism. It is by the gospel from heaven that God shook to pieces the civil and ecclesiastical state of the Jewish nation and introduced a new state of the church that cannot be removed, end quote. And once again, I think he's right. Are you following this? Are you following this? Owen and Brown and Henry and more, they all say, the shaking of heaven and earth, quoted from Haggai in Hebrews, is the functional end of Judaism, that the religion that these people wanted to go back to was coming to an end, was being shaken and would be dissolved. Let's say that you lived in the city of Plymouth on the Isle of Montserrat, and on a day, July 17th, 1995, you decided to leave your home and just travel to the un- other end of the island. Now, that, that would not have taken long, seeing as how the island is only 11 miles long and only seven miles wide. And let's say you're visiting a friend there, and then you want to go back to your home in Plymouth on the 18th. But all of a sudden, you start to feel the rumbling, and you start to see the smoke from Souffre Hills Volcano. 
And you, you think you're going to go home. You think you're going to go back to Plymouth. And then a faithful friend comes along and says, do not go home. Your house is about to be covered in lava, as is the entire city of Plymouth. And the entire city of Plymouth was covered in lava. In like, way, in like manner, don't go back to Judaism. I am about to shake it into non-existence. That's what God is saying. Uh, this is what the author of Hebrews means when he says back in chapter 8, verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It will be shaken, it will be moved, removed, it will be gone. I think that's what it means. But that is not the point. The point is not what is being shaken and what is being removed. The point is the permanence of what replaces it, the permanence of the gospel and the kingdom and the church. And what he's saying here is that the temporary form of worship, that is Judaism, had to be removed in order for the permanent, that is the unshakable kingdom of God through the gospel and the church, in order for that to remain and to continue. You see, in verse 27, he talks about the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that are made. And I think what he's talking about there is, is the temple in Jerusalem. But even if I'm wrong, even if I'm wrong, whatever it is, it has to be shaken and it has to be removed, verse 27, in order that, this is why it has to happen, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain or be permanent, the permanence. Again, let's just say that Mr. Brown and Mr. Owen and Mr. Henry and Mr. Moore are all wrong about Judaism being the thing that is shaken and removed. Do you know that there are plenty of other things that fit into this category which are shaken and removed? Uh, let me name one of them. Are you ready? Everything, everything is shaken and removed. So Anna and I have a, a few bucks to invest. So we decide to put it into the stock market, retirement fund, and we're watching it. Then we decide not to watch it for a while. So everything looks pretty good. At least we're told that things are pretty good. Is anybody keeping track of what's going on? Easy come, easy go. It is going through the floor. It is going through the floor. It is shaken and removed. This week, I went to the gym. I honestly did. Do you know that, uh, you know, they, they have mirrors in the gym? Why? Like, why? I'm walking from one machine to another. I look in the mirror and I ask myself, what have they done with me and why have they replaced me with this portly old man? Like, where have I gone? It doesn't matter what it is. Everything, and I mean everything, is shaken and removed. Everything in life is transitory and temporary and fluctuating and brief and fading and vanishing. Everything, including our lives, 
are shaken and removed. But the author here is saying that the gospel of the kingdom of Christ cannot be shaken. It's permanent. It's immutable. It's stable. It's a rock. It's dependable. It is enduring, and it is sure. I will come, and I will go, and I will be forgotten, and so will a thousand generation. Or as David Bowie said, ch-ch-ch-ch-changes. But the gospel of grace, the church of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God will not be shaken. It will remain. I don't know what the church is going to look like, but let's just say for the sake of argument that Jesus doesn't come for another thousand years. We cannot predict what the rest of the world will look like. But here's one thing that I can tell you. There will be a church and there will be the people of God. It is going to remain. It is going to remain. The gospel of grace, the church, the kingdom of God will not be shaken. It will remain. It's permanent. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 18, we do not look at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul, what are you looking at? I'm looking at things you can't see. I'm looking at truth and love and souls and the gospel and eternity and heaven and God himself. Why are you looking at those things, Paul? Because those things will last forever. They can't be shaken. They can't be removed. There is a permanence there. And so, my friends, do not go back to Judaism. Stick with Jesus because of the place, because of the permanence, and point number three, because of the pyro, which is just a P word for fire, pyro. Verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire, pyro. Verse 28 starts with the word therefore. Therefore, in light of this sure and unchanging, enduring gospel, the nature of it which will never come to an end, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Notice it is a kingdom which is received. It's not something that we work for. It is not something that we earn, but we receive it by grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. We receive it. And the proper response to receiving it is not apathy, it's not pride, it's not entitlement, but it is gratitude thankfulness, expressive appreciation. I'm going to say more about that when we get to our points of application. But for now, as we continue in verse 28, it says, and thus, in light of the fact that we are receiving a kingdom and we are to be receiving it with an attitude of gratitude, and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Worship here includes but it is not limited to our public or even small group gatherings at the church. 
Uh, worship is all of life. You cannot compartmentalize worship and non-worship. See, for the Christian, worship is 24-7, 365. But as I am going to preach it today, I'm going to preach it in light of our corporate public gatherings. That's the way I'm going to define and proclaim worship or service to the Lord in this sermon today. But just know that worship includes all of life. And notice that we are to offer to God worship or service which is acceptable. Now, what does that imply? Well, it implies that there is an unacceptable form of worship. There is such a thing as unacceptable worship. I think Cain discovered this in Genesis chapter 4 when he offered God his vegetables. And I think Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10 discovered that there is unacceptable worship when they offered strange fire on the altar. And I think Israel discovered that there's such a thing as unacceptable worship when Amos 5.21 says from God, I hate, I despise your feast, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. That worship which you are offering is unacceptable. And then in the final day, the religious missionaries who were out prophesying in the name of Jesus and casting out demons in his name and doing many wonderful works but we're simultaneously workers of iniquity in the final day, they're going to learn that their worship was unacceptable when they hear Jesus say, Matthew 7, 23, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. So knowing that there is such a thing as unacceptable worship, we need to examine ourselves to make sure that our worship is acceptable. Well, how do we do that? Well, the text doesn't leave us to guess. In verse 28, it says it is to be done with reverence and awe. Reverence and awe. Let's take reverence first. We need a serious revival of reverence. What is that? Well, reverence is an intense seriousness when it comes to the magnificent transcendence of God. Listen to how Donald Guthrie defines reverence. He says, it is an attitude of mind which acknowledges the greatness of God. It is knowing God as he has revealed himself in the scripture as almighty creator, sustainer, eternal, holy, omnipotent, sovereign king, and taking him seriously. Were you paying attention this morning when Ray prayed? And he talked about the fact that God is everything and we are but a vapor. That is reverence. Uh, Now, reverence is not the absence of joy, but reverence is taking God seriously. Uh, Jesus was reverent because the same word is used in the same book of Hebrews concerning the prayers of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, for he was heard because of his reverence. This past week, Keith and I were at a pastor's conference in Pennsylvania, and While we were there, there was about a half an hour early in the day dedicated to prayer. There were various pastors that prayed, and I appreciated all of their prayers. 
It was a very sweet time of worship, communion with God. But there was this one guy, and he started to pray. And this guy was calling out and crying out to God. What he was saying was sincere, and it was heartfelt, and it was personal, and it was intense, and it was passionate, and it was authentic. It was reverent. Now, I'm not saying that the other men that prayed were insincere. I'm just saying this guy came with the intention of connecting with God. He was taking God seriously. And if our worship is not reverent, if our public gatherings are not reverent, then they are unacceptable. And our gatherings are made up of people. There are people who come into our gatherings who are fully ready to worship reverently. They have prepared their hearts before they come. They have lived in worship throughout the week. And so their coming to church is just an extension of their worship toward God. But we happen to be together, and there are some people who come into worship God corporately who are not coming in with a reverent attitude. So I ask you to ask yourself, what is the contribution that you make to the public gathering? You see, careless, indifferent, cold, flippant worship is unacceptable because it's irreverent. And divided, self-distracted worship, in other words, being on your phone during the sermon, that is unacceptable because it is irreverent. And effortless, bare minimum, constantly arriving late, I'll get there when I get there. Worship is unacceptable. Why? Because it is irreverent and silly, frivolous, trite, entertaining worship is also unacceptable because it is irreverent. And perfunctory, going through the motions, I know the drill, stand up, sit down, sing, pray, listen, sing, go home, is also unacceptable because it is irreverent. What I'm trying to say to you is we are receiving a kingdom and this kingdom is important and this kingdom is unchanging and it is eternal and we are to have grateful hearts and in light of that, we are to be offering to God worship or service and it has to be reverent. Now, I'm not asking you if this is important to you. I am telling you that what we are doing right now is important. It is serious. And for the unsaved, what we are doing now is a matter of life and death. And so I would ask you, would you classify your worship of God as reverent? Irreverent worship is unacceptable. I long for and I pray for revival and the presence of God to be thick in this place. But my guess is that God's presence and God's glory are going to be light, and they are going to be distant in assemblies where he himself is not taken seriously. But not only must there be reverence, there has to be awe. And by awe, I mean jaw-dropping, breathtaking, holy fear-evoking, amazement and wonder at how infinitely small we are in his presence and how 
sinful we are in his presence and how great and glorious he is and how holy he is. That there is this sense that we come to church and our entire being is looking upward and we are in unison saying, how great thou art. You see, worship services where men are exalted, that is unacceptable. Worship services where we feel entitled or prideful, that is unacceptable. Where people are challenged, to un- unchallenged to remain in their sin, that is unacceptable. Worship where God and his word are just academic concepts, that is unacceptable. Acceptable worship, by definition, carries with it a sense of awe. In May of 2005, very first time I got out of my car and I walked up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, you did not have to tell me to be in awe. The, the, the air was extracted from my lungs. I could not believe what I was seeing. I was in awe. And that which extracts the air from the lungs of a worshiper is an accurate vision of who God is as he is revealed in his word, primarily through the gospel. Charles Spurgeon gave an illustration. He said, imagine with me, if you will, a poor milkmaid who is living in poverty, and one day she is summoned to go to the royal castle and to marry the prince. Here's what she, here's what Spurgeon says. Can it be, she would say. I, I, I can imagine when she was brought into the court, there would be noticeable bashfulness and shamefacedness about her. Such holy shame ought to be upon us whenever we stand before the Lord to minister to him not because of the servile dread of God, but out of an overwhelming sense of his unutterable love, we blush to be so highly favored, end quote. You see, only a proper understanding of the gospel revealed by the Holy Spirit can generate acceptable worship in the form of awe and wonder. And so let's review what we're doing here. How did you get here? I mean, honestly, would it not have been easier this morning just to stay home? Left to ourselves, we think we belong in heaven. We think we deserve it. We overvalue our own goodness and we undervalue God's love. But now enter the gospel. When the gospel is preached, And the Spirit turns on the light with awe. We turn to Christ. And with enthusiasm, we shout, the gospel is of first importance. The gospel is of first importance. I mean, my goodness, I was dead. I I was selfish. I was vile. I didn't love God. I didn't want God. But then his Spirit gave me life. And, and, and when I was awakened, I saw my danger and my plight and my peril. 
And I feared, and justifiably so, because I was a sinner. I was undone. I was unworthy. I was doomed. And I needed a place to run for refuge and safety and salvation. Oh, God heard my prayer. Oh, great God, you spelled it out clearly in your word. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. And that was my cue. I couldn't run fast enough. I couldn't run hard enough. I couldn't run with more determination to the risen Christ. Jesus, help me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, I believe that you died for me. The gospel is of first importance. And he heard my cry and he relieved my burden. And with joy, I entered into salvation. But watch this. As I entered, and as you entered, we entered, not with pride, not with apathy, not with cockiness, not with a sense of entitlement, but we entered with a sense of awe. Lord, why was I a guest? I, I, I am never going to be able to figure that out. Why was I made to hear thy voice? I mean, my goodness, this morning I was milking cows, and now I'm a part of the royal family. You see, the gospel, when in focus, gives us a sense of genuine awe. And so I ask, did you walk into church today in awe of his transcendent glory and his free and abundant, unchanging love? Acceptable worship requires reverence and awe. Why? Because of what it says in verse 29. Please notice as you read verse 29, that the first word in that verse is really important. For, the word for means that what has previously been said, now a reason for it is being given. And so we are to worship God with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. There is the pyro, there is the fire. Jonathan Edwards preached a very famous sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that sermon by many has been much maligned because it is said that he overstates or that he goes too far in his doctrine of eternal damnation. Let me read you this quote, please, concerning Jonathan Edwards. God, and by the way, Edwards believed that the fire of hell was God himself. And this quote says, God will be the hell of one and the heaven of another. It is because God is the fire which burns in hell that words can never convey, much less exaggerate the terrors of the damned, unquote. This phrase, our God is a consuming fire, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Uh, turn back there, please, Deuteronomy chapter 4. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is preparing the people to cross over into the promised land. He's telling them that he himself is not going to be able to cross over with them because of his disobedience. God is sternly in this chapter warning the children of Israel not to fall into the sin of idolatry. Listen to verses 23 and 24. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, 
and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, outwardly, the people to whom he was speaking were the people of God. I mean, they, unlike their parents, were going to go into the land of promise. But Moses reminds them before they go to consider the seriousness of who they are dealing with and that breaking the covenant or being idolaters is an offense to a jealous God. In other words, do not forget who you are dealing with. The Lord your God is a consuming fire. He loves us. He's merciful. He forgives in Christ. But this verse is saying he will not be mocked and he will not be taken lightly. So before you leave his precious son, Jesus Christ, and renounce his saving blood and go back into Judaism, please be reminded that our God is a consuming fire. And I would say to you, any of you that are thinking about leaving Jesus Christ and the church and Christianity and going back into the world, please be reminded, our God is a consuming fire. That should intensify both our love and our respect for God. You see, because of Christ, if you are in Christ and covered by the blood of Christ, that fire will never touch you. But let's be clear, if you are not in Christ, our God is a consuming fire. And that is the intended motivation in order to generate reverence and awe among Christian worshipers. Which brings us to our points of application, and today I have six. Number one, very simply, listen and obey God's word. Listen to and obey God's word. Why? Because we live in the new covenant era, and we will have a stricter judgment than the children of Israel who were under the old covenant. The one speaking from heaven demands attention and obedience, so take it seriously and listen and obey. Number two, prioritize the permanent. Prioritize the permanent. Spend your life's energy on what will last forever, the unshakable kingdom. Don't waste your life, your short life, on what will be shaken, removed, and forgotten. But remember the words of Jim Elliott, who only lived to be 28 years old, died as a martyr in Ecuador. Jim Elliott said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. What is it that you cannot keep? Again, it is everything. It is everything. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And what is it that you cannot lose? A kingdom which you are to receive is grateful, which cannot be shaken and cannot be removed. Eternal life. Invest in permanence. Number three, very simply, be thankful. I believe that the key to a proper perspective on life is thankfulness. The key to a happy and joyful worship service is thankfulness. The key to a good marriage is thankfulness. The key to making it through life with sanity is thankfulness. Verse 28, 
Be grateful for receiving a kingdom. Constantly remind yourself of your undeserved free gifts that you receive from God and be thankful. I believe that our church would be such a better place if every Sunday morning, every person for just five minutes would take time to sincerely count their blessings and to name them one by one, specifically the blessings that they have received from God. I've had a few health scares in my life. You know, you you sense something in your body, you go for a report from the doctor, you're very, very, very apprehensive and anxious as you are waiting to get the results from the doctor, and as evidenced by the fact that I am standing up in front of you today, none of them up to this point have been serious, but I didn't know that until I got the word. I cannot tell you how my heart swells with thankfulness when I get those words. It's negative, benign, don't worry, you're going to be all right. And it seems as though every time I have one of these health scares, the next time that I am in church, it's like the Bible verses are, are like, they're almost like physically amplified. And the blessings which we enjoy, it's like, yes. And the songs that we sing, my heart just swells. And the word that I receive, it just seems so much richer and sweeter. What is it that makes the difference? Was the preacher better that day? Was the song leader more on key that day? Was there more clarity in my eyesight in seeing the verses? No, no, and no. What made the difference was a thankful heart. That's what makes the difference. Receive the kingdom with gratefulness. Cultivate thankfulness. You will always have joy. Not in my notes. Conversely, have unrealistic high expectations. Complain. Be disappointed. And you will never have joy. Number four, closely related. Treat all of life, but but especially treat public worship with reverence and awe. Treat public worship with reverence and awe. Let me ask you, please, by the Holy Spirit, to ask yourself, are you all in? Are you all in? Are you all in? Are you totally here? Acceptable worship requires reverence and awe. Number five, don't be ashamed to speak of God's wrath. Man, I'm a pastor. I start taking the gospel to people and I'm sharing the gospel I have a temptation. This is, this is how big of a prideful sinner your pastor is. I have a temptation sometimes when I'm sharing the gospel to give the facts and to shy away from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. The gospel does contain the fact that God is love and that Jesus in love died for us and rose again. 
and, and that if we simply believe and trust in him, repent of our sins, we will be saved. And there is a heaven to gain, but that is an incomplete gospel. For the gospel also contains this. Our God, Pyro, is a consuming fire. And so take courage today as part of your gospel message to include the wrath of God. Do not shy away from it. Another side note, it's not in my notes. I think that there are some people who are so happy to hear this point because they really love to tell people that they're going to hell. You are a horrible evangelist, okay? That is not the heart of the message. I'm saying don't exclude it. The heart of the message is the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. You all these wonderful things that are just coming to me today. <laughs> Number six. This is a word to the unsaved. Run to Christ immediately. Because I am telling you that there is a day coming when you will be in awe of God. I hope that that day is today, and I certainly hope that that day is before you die. But just know that there is a day, we all have this in common, when we will be in awe of God at the judgment. I want to tell you that you do not have to wait for that day to be in awe of him. Humble yourself today and admit that you are a sinner and cry out to Jesus for salvation. Why? Because Jesus bore the pyro. He bore the fire of God's wrath so that you don't have to. Today, salvation is offered to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Be in awe of him today and run to Christ better now than in the judgment. Father in heaven, thank you for the attentiveness of these people. Lord, not only do they sing with enthusiasm, Lord, but they listen, Lord, with reverence. And for that, I am thankful. Lord, I pray that not only would they now have comprehended this message, but I pray that they will remember it. And Lord, where there are truths which need to be corrected in their minds, I pray, Lord, that your spirit will do that work. Lord, where there is application in their lives that they have to change, I pray, Lord, that they will have grace. I pray for all of us, Lord, that you would grant us, individually and collectively, grateful hearts, for you have been so kind to us in Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.